Well, good morning to the viewers watching us today, either at the 8 o'clock or the 10 o'clock or the 12 o'clock and even the 5 o'clock in the afternoon broadcast. All of you listening by way of radio, just a big welcome to you. We know these are unusual times and for many of us, even the idea of watching our community leadership meetings and sermons and staying in contact in community through uh, WhatsApp and Zoom has been a real challenge and stretch for all of us. But if you're watching, well done. We are trying to educate a whole church that if ever there was an international epidemic of cataclysmic proportion and we were really locked down, at least we have a way now that we've learned. So well done and we keep learning together. Trust that you've had a look at our website, highway.org.za, because on our website is the online church button, which you can click on, and maybe that's how you got on this morning. So, well done on that. Just to say that uh, my dear wife got back this week. She's been away for a couple of months in the UK, as many of you know. So good to have her home. So good. I look forward to her coming and having a little bit of a, a, a chat on, online with you. I'm going to give her a little bit of time to rest and get her bags unpacked. Happy wife, happy life. Amen. All right. So this morning, we are very blessed and privileged. We have a great teach about a come on life. We've got Lee Jansen ministering this morning. I know you're going to love this message. We appreciate and love Lee and open your hearts and receive what God has got for you today. And even if you are moving around a little bit, put the volume up high and remember, please have an open Bible in your house at this time. Over to Lee. What I'd like to talk about today, uh, the word that I'm going to start with is unity. What does it really mean uh, to be unified? Uh, we always talk about unity as something that we should have, something we should work towards. But what do we really mean by that? Uh, I suppose it's clear that, that unity is not uniformity. But what is it really and, and how do we get it? And the reason that I've been thinking about this so much is because at the moment it feels like there are just so many forces that are trying to drive people apart at every possible opportunity. Um, masks are dangerous. Not wearing a mask is dangerous. Pineapple belongs on pizza. Pineapple definitely does not belong on pizza. Republican, Democrat, pro-vaccination, anti-vaccination. We could probably list a hundred different either ors with not too much effort. And I can understand to some extent how we got here. People have short attention spans. Even you sitting there listening to me for the next little while, I'm so honored <laughs> that you are giving me your attention. Um, but on the whole, we tend to have short attention spans. And if you're getting your news in 30-second doses, it's very unlikely that you're going to get an informed, nuanced, unbiased, unbiased unsensationalized view of what's going on. Uh, the only time that they've got available, uh, they're going to use that to emphasize the differences, to sensationalize the bits of information 
uh, that they've got so that people tuning in, more people will tune in and they'll be able to get uh, more advertising, sell more advertising space. But in fairness, even if you did spend 24 hours a day listening to the news uh, and finding news and researching and, and getting your own information, uh, it's just not possible to actually get a deep knowledge on a whole number of things. And so we end up with, you would end up with knowledge that is incredibly wide but very shallow and often filtered through a number of prejudices on its way to you. And if you're on social media, it makes it even harder because so many of the social media platforms that we're on are designed to be echo chambers. They're designed to show us more of what we already believe and what we already think, uh, thus making us think that what we already think and believe is normal and average and natural and what everyone thinks and believes and anybody who doesn't is abnormal or unnatural or whatever the case may be. Uh, and so I, my concern is that topics get, topics get oversimplified. And when topics get oversimplified, so do people. When those who don't believe the same as what our people, us, we, our people, believe, uh, then it's easy. We can clearly classify them as those people. Have you heard those people, them? We can dismiss them as ignorant for not believing what we believe about any given topic. We can demonize them for thinking differently to us. If those people believe that, then they must believe this and this and this. And so in some ways it's easier. We have an excuse not to engage. We don't have to think. We don't have to have any discussion. If you believe that, you must be dumb or evil and you are no longer worthy of my time or my attention and I can dismiss you and your crazy views as not worth it. It's an easy way to think. We don't have to think so hard. We don't need to love so hard. And we don't need as much Holy Spirit when we see the world that way. When people are as violently polarized as we are seeing today, what happens is that people start to live in fear of individuals or groups of people who don't believe absolutely everything the same way that they do. And three things happen when we live by fear. We stop living by faith. We block the flow of God's love through us and we become easy to control. And I, I don't think that the media is wholly to blame for that. I think this problem goes right back to the garden. <laughs> so let's turn to Genesis. I love Genesis. I always do. I, I don't think there's been a time that I've preached in this church that I haven't used Genesis at some stage. So... Anyway, all right, so Genesis 2, verse uh, 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded them, saying, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And then it carries on. He uh, um, says it's not good that man should be alone. He looks at all the animals, can't find a wife, thank goodness. And uh, so God makes, uh, makes Eve. And then we go to uh, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to him, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, uh, and you shall not touch it, uh, otherwise you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like gods, 
knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was, that it was pleasant to the eyes and, the, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate it and gave also unto her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And I know you know the rest of the story there. They hide. God says, where are you? What happened? And then, uh, and then the important thing, uh, he says, who told you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you that you not to eat of? And the man says, the woman. The woman you gave me. So where that intention of God had been oneness, all of a sudden now there was division. Where there had been love, now there was accusation. He says, the woman that you gave me, she made me eat. She gave me the fruit. And then the Lord God says to the woman, and what have you done? And the woman says, the serpent. So all of a sudden, the accuser has changed lovers into accusers. We'll get back to that. And so basically what Satan did there was he made God look like he was less than loving, like he was holding something back. God knows that, that this, what, what this tree will do. And he does, he's, he's wanting to uh, keep himself free of competition, and that's why he's not letting you eat of it. Um, and so he accuses God of untrustworthiness and invites them to judge God's word to them and to get their life from something other than God. And they fall for it. From unity to disunity, from oneness to brokenness. We know in that story God covers their shame, but we still see the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil even today. But why is that a bad thing? Why is knowing good from evil a bad thing? Surely our, you know, we want more good and less evil and we need to understand the difference. But the Hebrew, here for, the Hebrew word here for knowledge is not just an intellectual understanding, but an, an experience of, uh, of good and evil. It's, 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 a, it's an intimate knowledge of. Uh, and so what it implies there is that they are getting their knowledge of God uh, their definition of an of experience, definition and experience of good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. And eating, a tr- eating of that tree represents a rebellion, uh, grasping at God's sovereignty. Um, as the serpent says, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eating of that tree, it, it demonstrates our attempts to position ourselves as judges rather than leaving judgment to God. And I'd like to propose that the fundamental sin at play here is not just disobedience, because disobedience could be overcome by obedience, but rather uh, it's entrusting their knowledge of good and evil as their source of life over what God has already provided. And so they trust in their own self-assessment of their worth rather than God's assessment. And like with any food, when you eat that food, you're trusting it to nourish you. You're trusting it to give you life. And so when they ate of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were trusting that for their life. They were trusting that knowledge for their life instead of trusting the tree of life, instead of trusting God himself. And once you start trusting in the knowledge of good and evil, you start to see and experience the world through a self-serving lens of judgment. It was the woman you gave me. It was the serpent. And what happens is, because of that, God said, we have to shut the way because otherwise they will eat of the tree of life in this state. I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but we don't want them in this state to 
eat of the tree of life. They are mutually exclusive possibilities. They cannot be, you cannot consume of both sources of life at the same time. Uh, and so in the same way, we can't trust God's provision of life and the love that he has for all mankind while we are practicing judgment, while we are engaging in uh, that knowledge of, knowledge of good and evil. And so through the two trees, he showed that he has provided life but prohibited judgment. When we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when we get life, by defining good and evil for ourselves, then we are blocked. By an angel and a flaming sword, we are blocked from the tree of life. And we can no longer love effectively and allow that love to flow through us. And so with Adam and Eve in the garden, when we eat of that tree, we cannot reflect that love towards each other. We are forever hungry. Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil cannot give life. If we've been deceived into thinking that it will give us life, we will forever be hungry. Just as we need God's living water to never be thirsty, we need that tree of life to never be hungry. When we trust in it for our life, we will always be disappointed, even if it does seem pleasing to the eye and good to eat, as it seemed to Eve. When we try to know what only God can know, when we try to be wise in the sense that it destroys us, in that sense it destroys us. In seizing what belongs to him, we lose what belongs to us, that life. We forfeit our God-given authority. Instead of being ruled by divine love, we become oppressed by diabolic power. We turn from lovers into accusers. And so in short, judgment is the opposite of love. They are absolutely mutually exclusive. God's agape love ascribes worth at the cost of himself. Because on the cross, he gave himself to give us infinite worth. That is agape love. Judgment is about ascribing worth to ourselves, usually at the cost of others. They are absolutely opposite and cannot exist together. Usually what happens when we've started engaging in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, we get our life, our sense of value and affirmation by comparison. So I'd like you to just take a moment to think, and maybe over the next few days, also, have a little think. Take note of your internal monologue. When you think of people, even just observing the people around you in traffic, not a good example, or a good example, not a good experience. <laughs> when, you see, when you observe people, do you observe them with compassion? Do you see them through eyes of love? Do your thoughts bless those around you? Or do you criticize, mentally listing the things that you disapprove of, or the things that you dislike about them, or the things that disappoint you, or their driving skills, or their horrible queuing skills, whatever the case may be. Do you make assumptions about them based on your few seconds of interaction? Are you surrounded by idiots? If your monologue is predominantly critical of yourself and of others, then you need to ask God to grip your heart with his love for you and for others, because that is not what God has for us. When we start to view people through those self-serving lenses, when we judge some as worth loving and others as worth hating or dismissing or disregarding, it's usually because we gain a sniff of life with every act of judgment. There's actually no other reason for it. There's no other possible thing that we can gain uh, from judging others. And usually that's by comparison. At least I don't talk to my kids like that. At least I don't look like that. 
At least I'm not as weak in my faith as that particular person. At least I don't lie or cheat or steal or abuse or any of, the ones, any of those things that, that genuinely are wrong. They, they are. There's no denying that. But when we gain our life by comparison with those things, that's when we lose out on, on the life that God has, God has got for us. Amen. <laughs> and a good question. A difficult question, but a good question. How often do people say of Christians, wow, they are such loving people. Certainly not often enough. That's for sure. And so often as believers, we think our job is to be set apart by our goodness. We judge ourselves by the question, how good am I? We stick to our moral code so everyone will see how fabulously wonderful we are and how sternly we disapprove of all those who are not as wonderful as us. We trust our disapproval to fix people. Because it is absolutely the stern disapproval of Christians that draws people to Jesus, right? Right? Absolutely. Amen. <laughs> you would think so by the behavior of many Christians, but no. When we think we can and should fix people, even at that point, we've missed the bus. People don't grow in Christ-likeness due to social pressure or my disapproving tight-lipped whatever. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the word of God preached and the context of an intimate body of believers, that's where they grow. Interestingly, the only sin that Jesus ever confronts, is, confronts directly is religious judgmental oppression. That's the, that's the sin where he, he brings it with condemnation. In most cases, he responds with love. And it's from that place of love that people go and sin no more. In that case, with those religious leaders, the most loving thing he could do was to point out that this is not how God operates, and doing so in his name is wrong. But even then, I don't think God wants us to be just good. Goodness is such a, a poor standard, actually. God wants us to love. You can, in, in Corinthians, I'll go there now, 1 Corinthians. Love is the center, it is the defining thing. The thing that should define Christians is their love. If God is love, then God followers should be defined by their love. And we all, we all know that, you know, love is patient, love is kind. But I love the, the first few verses of that, ver of that chapter are my favorites. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, just a noise. And if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith that I could remove mountains, but have not love, these are all good things. Prophecy, moving mountains, tongues of men and angels, these are good. But without love, without love, they are absolutely nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. That is what God has called us to. That is the simplest but the hardest part of the Christian walk, is knowing what it means to just walk in love. 
That's why the greatest commandments, the, the Pharisees were saying, what is the greatest commandment? What's that one thing that we can measure ourselves by? What is the thing? If I do that, then I'm, I've made it. What does God say? What does Jesus say? Love God and love others. Love God and love others. That's it. That's the sum of everything. And of course, it is good to detect good and evil. We do need to be able to discern. I'm not, I'm not at all getting into moral relativism here to say that there is no such thing as good and evil. I'm absolutely not going in that direction. Uh, we, we need to call evil things evil, and we need to call the good things good. But in engaging with people and engaging with, with evil behavior, um, people saying and doing things that do not seem good to us and that we clearly can see are wrong, we have to hold on to our love. And how do we do that? We do that by treating them as beings of unsurpassable worth, people for whom God gave his only son. So even when someone is possibly an actual judge, sitting in an actual judgment seat in our courts of law, even then, when their job really is to, to judge, that I would hope that that judgment happens, understanding the worth of this person that they have unsurpassable worth before the God of the universe, that he sent his only son to die for them. That is how we need to view each person. And sometimes, loving someone who's abusive means removing opportunities to be abusive. It does not mean tolerating abuse, because it's not loving to the abuser or the abused. But in any case, in any instance, not even with the person that we see as most embodying evil, we have no room to be smug. We don't get to see them as individuals less than individuals created by God to be objects of his love. And there's no place to judge anyone as less worthy of his love or less worthy of our love because we've managed to succeed in an area that they've failed. What is it to love someone? We treat them the way God sees them. As individuals of unsurpassable worth, and I will say it again, unsurpassable worth who are dearly loved by the ruler of the universe. Judgment is actually a waste of time. <laughs> it's such a waste of time and energy. The only purpose that we can have in, just, in judgment is to serve ourselves. The truth is we can never know all there is to know about an individual's circumstances that will enable to judge their worth accurately or to, to know the state of their heart or to judge their sinfulness accurately. We can never know that. Only God can know that. Reality is so utterly complex that our view is so incredibly narrow. We will only ever have a partial, oversimplified view, which just goes to show how deceitful the serpent was in promising that they would be like God. Because we cannot have that knowledge. One day we will know as we are known. All things will be revealed to us. But right now, we can never know how good or, or evil a person's actions truly are. We can never accurately judge the state of their heart. What use is there really? The only gain we can have is, is that sniff of a bit of life or a bit of feeling better about ourselves. Only God can love and judge at the same time because only he has knowledge of all events throughout time uh, and by all people, everyone's actions, the thoughts of everyone's hearts. We have access to not even the tiniest fraction of that. And I know for some people, they're sitting saying, yes, 
feeling this word kicking against something inside. And I, I'm not normally quite this direct, but the harder this feels right now, the more that I would worry you've been getting your life from comparisons, from judgment, and missing out on the freedom of getting your life straight from the purest, infinite source, God himself. And I only know that, and I can only be that direct because I've been there. I got my life from winning arguments, from being the best, from being right, from being good. And I was pretty good at it, actually. <laughs> but I found it wholly unsatisfying. When everything is a competition and everyone you know is an opponent, that's not freedom, and there's no space for love there. True freedom is living free from performance and free from expecting others to perform. Performing to avoid my disapproval, usually. That's not freedom. That's not love. That's not relationship. And so, as hard as this feels right now to say, just love, it's as simple as that. As hard as it feels right now, I urge you to just sit with it. To just sit with it and let God show you the love that he has for you. Sometimes we need to learn to love again. There's a hunger in your heart for love and life that only God can give. And when you try to fill it any other way, it's never, ever enough. Like any drug, it's addictive. And you think this next one will be enough. But moments, once you come down from that high, it's gone. And you're looking for your next fix. Even getting life from good things is wrong. Because then we're sucking life out of them instead of giving life into them. And that's what it means to live in the flesh. When we've got to get our life, get our sustenance from the things around us, from a place of hunger and desperation, rather than living from a place of love and abundance. So what's the antidote? And it's there. Don't worry about it. You've got to get with God and ask Him to show you how to break that addiction. Get with God and ask Him to show you the love that He has for you Firstly, and for those around you, secondly. And in doing so, start to speak blessing. Where you've had a habit of speaking curses and thinking uh, in a critical mindset, just criticizing and judging, start to speak blessing. That moment, catch yourself. Capture those thoughts of judgment and turn them into uh, proclamations of blessing and prayer of blessing for those people. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, Lord, I just pray that you will bless that person as they drive, that you will keep them safe, that you will keep all of their, their, um, the people on the taxi <laughs> safe. I want to say pedestrians, but it's not pedestrians. Everybody on that vehicle, keep them safe. Bless them with your love and your patience. And if they're struggling to make ends meet, I trust that you will bless them with finances. Uh, Lord, I trust that you will bless them with finances to keep that vehicle well-maintained. Bless them with wisdom. Just speak blessing over every single person you come across. Capture those thoughts. Take each of those critical judgmental thoughts absolutely captive and ask God to show you how he sees that pe person. Most people don't set out to be evil. They want the same things, same things you do. They want a healthy life. They want a happy life. They want to make a difference in the world. When we start to see people as, as human beings, just wanting to live a good life the same way we do, 
we can start to see them even more in the way that, that God sees them. I can fiercely disagree with someone. And I can think that the way they see the world is abhorrent to me. But I don't get to see myself as superior. I don't get to see them as anything less than an individual of unsurpassable worth. Someone loved by God enough that he would send their son to die for them. So what does it look like to live from love? Both shame and pride come from living in our knowledge of good and evil. And they're symptoms of how we've separated ourselves from God. Just as Adam separated himself from God in the garden. When we're in a community that strives to see people and treat people the way God does, we can be real. We don't have to hide where Adam and Eve did in the garden. Our worth is not determined by how well we perform. We can let our community in on our struggles and let them stand with us and love and walk with us to a place of restoration. Judgment punishes, but love restores. Now that community doesn't happen in the context of a Sunday meeting. As wonderful and valuable as Sunday meetings are, it happens in the context of a small group that commits to walking in love with each other on a regular basis. This is where the action happens. For the love of God, get yourself a small group. <laughs> Find a place where you can be spiritually naked and unashamed. And you will find a place of love and restoration. And I assure you, you'll have plenty of opportunities to view people with the eyes of love when you are tempted to see them with the eyes of judgment. <laughs> it's a good place to practice. Committing to that small group is an invitation to allow those people to speak into your life. People who have knowledge of you, who know you, who want the best for you. Invite them and trust them. As far as it's up to you, Create space where people can be real with you. And when you are speaking into someone else's life, always approach it with humility, a deep sense of love and compassion, honoring the worth that God has described to that person. And there are times where it means not being nice. And I understand that. Jesus wasn't always nice. True love includes aspiring to help people be the best that they can be. And in a way, we remind them that they are infinitely valued, even as they are. Even if someone's ideas are not godly, where are they most likely to be changed? Most of the time, that change happens over time and in a context of trust. And that trust happens in relationship. A small group, a connect group, a life group, a cell group, a discipleship group, whatever you want to call it. When we build those groups on the basis of love and realness, instead of on a basis of judgment and exclusion, those can become incredible places of restoration where we, we get to experience that unconditional love of God. And I want to end with a quote from C.S. Lewis. It is a serious thing, says Lewis, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is, it is in the light of these 
overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind, and it is, in fact, merriment of the best kind, which exists between people who from the outset have taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. And I love that. You have never spoken to a mere mortal. Let's leave judgment to God, and let's ask him what it means to love outrageously, to love as he loves, because that is how the world will know that we are his. A kingdom advanced not by goodness, but by love. Not an insipid, sentimental love, but a fierce, powerful, blazing love. Even in our sins, Christ died for us, and in doing so gave us infinite worth. And even when we fail to live up to the righteousness he's given us, he never stops pursuing us. We can and should stop being judgmental of ourselves. God, who actually is perfect, still chases after us, demonstrating that grace always beats judgment if we let it. Lord God, I just thank you that you transform us. That even this message, that we may feel bad about how we've spoken about, spoken about people or, or thought of people and say, how, how can I change this? It's just, it just happens in my head and it just comes out of my mouth. What am I going to do? But Lord, we trust that you can change us, that you reveal yourself to us, that you reveal your love for us and for others, that we see them through your eyes, that most of all, I pray for each of us, Lord, that we will see them through your eyes. Each and every single, single individual, we see them through your eyes of incredible love, incredible love, your grace. We just thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us up to ourselves to say, fix it. Fix your critical spirit. Fix your judgmental heart. No. You pull us into a great big bear hug and say, come here. My son, my daughter, I love you so much. And you take that heart of stone and you give us a heart of flesh. And you help us to look past the splinter in someone else's eye and see the log in our eye. <laughs> you draw us in. Thank you, Jesus, into your love, your incredible love that demonstrates to us the unsurpassable worth that you've given each and every single one of us. Thank you, Jesus.